Welcome to Drone Futures, a series about how drones are reshaping how the world is perceived, how people are governed, and how power is enacted and resisted. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, a researcher on drones, war and culture at the University of New South Wales. Drone Futures is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bedigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past and present and express our solidarity with the movements for Black and Indigenous lives. This episode features J.D. Schnepf, Assistant Professor of American Studies at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Jen Schnepf has been researching the connections between drones, domesticity and femininity for some time now and is in the throes of writing a book on the subject. We met earlier this year at the Aesthetics of Drone Warfare conference, where she gave a terrific presentation on gender, privacy and gothic drones. I'm delighted to have the chance to chat with her and to have her present some of her recent work on ecological crisis and drone humanitarianism. JD Schnepf, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. To kick things off, what brought you to researching drones? Um, that's a good question. Um, I came across it by accident, I think, when I was, I think it was the summer of 2015. Uh, it was sort of serendipitous. I came across a Martha Stewart story that was in the news at the time, and it was about uh, an essay she had written for Time magazine called Why I Love My Drone. Uh, and it turned out that that summer she had taken photos of her property in Connecticut uh, and sort of marveled over how beautiful uh, her um, images had turned out, right? That these aerial images had sort of really um, inspired her and the way she wrote about it was, was that it reminded her of Versailles. Um, and I thought, you know, like on its own, that's, a, that's quite a staggering um, comment, but this was sort of paired with doing a little bit of digging around the internet and learning that um, drones were becoming, I guess, popular in, in women's print media. And so uh, at the same time, I believe that same summer, um, US Vogue had a uh, editorial uh, that featured a woman in her backyard, a backyard that looked very similar to Martha Stewart's, right? With like the nice boxwood hedges, um, the nice greenery and a sort of idea of, of perfect domesticity that somehow um, also incorporated drones. And so for me, that was a real moment to, to just think about how, how do people approach this? And um, I knew about uh, work from earlier periods um, so Amy Kaplan's work on the anarchy of empire, I, I, you know, knew that there was a relationship between the domestic sphere and, uh, imperial culture, but this seemed like something new and different. So that I think, um, you know, I was lucky to have exciting primary sources to really lead the way for me with that. But I think, um, that that was, that was a sort of initial, um, initially a very sort of like small question, like what are these, what is Martha Stewart doing? What, what is women's, um, you know, print and digital media doing and why hasn't this been commented on yet? So <laughs> it was an easy sort of initial intervention to make, I think, because it was just sort of so apparent that, that there was, um, important conversations to be had about the way, um, domesticity and, and gender was playing into uh, the way drones were being 
depicted at this moment. It's so interesting that you started with that domestic moment rather than with the you know militarized drone of war, the spooky or, or Reaper drone, um, and and yet have uh, been drawn into that uh, into into finding those connections between the imperial and um, and the domestic. Much of your earlier work has been on that these questions of domesticity that you started with. Can you give us a bit of an overview of your research so far? So I, uh, as I said, started by looking at uh, Martha Stewart and other ways that um, women's media was sort of coming to terms with um, drones. And this, uh, for me, became a a bigger project um, that I, you know, sort of called uh, Drones in Domesticity (laughs) uh, that that I think will give people um, a a sort of good sense of how the idea of, of femininity and the domestic sphere have played an important part in thinking about um, U.S. imperialism, and I really think of the drone, um, you know, not as a um, a sort of technological object so much as a, a cipher that's that's sort of helping us make sense of of the relationship between um, uh, domestic culture and um, uh, the U.S. security state and and U.S. imperial practices. So. Um, yeah, and my research more broadly in the in the drones and domesticity project, I'm I'm taking things that I think people um, probably have a general uh, familiarity with. So so ideas, um, for example, that popular idea that uh, uh, drones at home are a privacy threat, right? And and I've I've talked about this before um, in in um, uh, other talks and papers, but this idea of having um, uh, a woman's privacy compromised by the appearance of a, a drone in her backyard, for example. Um, and, and I really tie that into this idea of um, home surveillance and security. And, and in part, then we um, get talking about the way that the um, the privatization of, of the U.S. security state and the way that, that women... Um, uh, as sort of uh, guardians of the domestic sphere uh, still participate in that. Um, so I, I am thinking about the way that, that femininity is um, uh, working with these technologies um, to produce strange effects. In another chapter, I'm looking at um, uh, drone delivery because, of course, uh, delivery sort of demarcates the distinction between inside and outside the perimeter of the home. Um, and I'm linking that to um, women as consuming subjects, right? So the idea of um, consumption um, getting out of control and how how the drone sort of participates in that, um, how that's both um, a source of humor in some um in some popular culture and the source of terror in others. So the idea of the, of the, uh, the drone sort of delivering over and over again, even when um, people want it to stop, we see things like that on black mirror. Yeah. And then I think, uh, you know, just to sort of like round out some of the things I'm talking about in, in the project, I'm also looking at, um, contemporary literature, 21st century literature, which has sort of taken a, a genre turn. Um, and I'm thinking about what that means in terms of 
um, the depiction of drones. And there I'm really interested, um, unfortunately, in some pretty bad books, <laughs> um, but Michael Crichton's Prey and Dave Eggers' The Circle, where you have um, uh, basically uh, versions of female entrepreneurship, right? So I, I am thinking about, about the way that uh, gender and this this sort of idea of of the self possessed liberal subject um, are are working together to sort of compel women into to drone like um, positions um, within within society and so um, you know it's a it's a sort of crazy story that you move from being sort of like a victim to a participant to a um, uh, to to maybe sort of acquiring some kind of agency because of the drone, um, you, you know, and then ultimately ending up with a kind of imperial nostalgia in the way that someone like Martha Stewart does. So, um, yeah, it's about gender and it's about um, a lot more. Your work um, often combines a feminist perspective with um, the close reading of your of your objects of analysis, and you have a background in literary studies as well, rather than science and technology or, or media studies. So how has your disciplinary training and your feminist perspective on, on these matters um, shaped the way you approach drones? It's important to, for me anyway, it's, it's been really important to think about uh, and be skeptical of uh, gender narratives. Um, you know, you asked you asked sort of earlier um, about what brought me to the study of drones. One of the things when I went to sort of like look for answers to what was happening in terms of um, uh, uh, women's media and, and representation of drones is that I just didn't find any scholarship <laughs> uh, talking about that, right? And so it is a very, in some ways, uh, masculine arena um, that sort of, um, I think, unfortunately, imagines that there is like uh, a space of war that is somehow closed off from um, domestic concerns. And I think one of the things we know about about drones and, and you know, um, even like popular films have done a great job at, at looking at this, but the, the drone operator, the American drone operator, you know, goes to Creech Air Force Base and flies drones during the day and then goes home to their suburban family. And so um, it does seem like like a very unavoidable um, thing to in, engage with. And so I think for me, um, like I said, being skeptical of, of these gendered narratives that, that put too much, that put too much on uh, this sort of militarized way of, of thinking about drones um, was something that I really wanted to unpack. And I will say that as soon as you start looking for it, uh, you know, and I guess that's what I do as a, as a literary scholar is to, uh, you know, not just have a, have a media studies or a media infrastructural approach or a, something like that, but is to really have a textual approach, right? So to think about the way that, that language um, is is working uh, and to do close reading that's going to um, unpack um, that. So I do I do that with um, with language and and increasingly with um, visual culture, right? To sort of historicize these things and and think about um, uh, the symbolic order, you know, as well as uh, what's happening um, politically and and um, Historically, and I'll I'll just sort of like conclude with an anecdote um, to this question, which is that um, 
when I started reading about drones, one of the first books I think most people read is A Theory of the Drone by um, Shamayu, which is a sort of really beautiful book and one of the earlier books, um, earliest books that came out on in drone study. So it's probably, I think it's 2010, but um, as I was reading, I came across this amazing chapter on, on the kill box. And, you know, almost as a sort of thought experiment, he starts talking about uh, the military fantasizing about being ever more precise so that, um, you know, that the, the drone is finally going to be small enough and precise enough that it will enter your home. <laughs> right. So it'll enter your home. It'll enter your um, or maybe even your bedroom or maybe even your home office. Right. And so um, you don't have to look very far to sort of see uh, that the domestic is part of the military's uh, imperial imagination, right? That it's, it's sort of like the, the fantasy in, in this respect seems to be, you know, that you can target people within their homes, which is, is um, a sort of shocking thing, but it just sort of shows that like the domestic is at, at the heart of the way that the military is imagining um, the future of drone technology. Yeah, I was thinking um, as, you were, as you were speaking about um, the, the, you know, the of Helen Mirren in the Iron Sky, and then also you know the the domesticity of a, of a good kill, um, and, and you know Ethan Hawke returning returning to home, and this sort of stereotypical playing out in many ways of of the of the war arriving um, in in the domestic space, um, but also then you know the um, the knife drone, um, the the knife Hellfire missile that like shoots through the roof of a building and then um, and then only um, causes death and destruction within the small space of the room. Um, so yeah, this constant tension in, in so many ways between um, the domestic and uh, and the military, um, and and um, and where the site of violence is. What piece of drone studies research has most influenced your own thinking on the subject? Yeah, there are so many to choose from. I think that's <laughs> that's you're a really only, hard you're question. You're only allowed one. <laughs> oh boy. Um, maybe I'll say, um, uh, I guess Lisa Park's most recent book has been really compelling to me. Um, uh, you know, I, I sort of have been very much influenced by, by feminist thinkers, um, like Karen Kaplan and Interpol Grewal. Um, as I mentioned, Amy Kaplan's work, um, has been really useful. Um, Lisa, Lisa Park's book, um, Rethinking Media Coverage, Vertical Mediation in the War on Terror. Um, it's a, it's a fairly short book, but it, it just really, uh, does an amazing job, I think, of, of, um, moving through, uh, a lot of, um, you know, domestic situations, things like, like the news or things like, um, going through, uh, the security checkpoint at the airport, um, and, and showing how the things that we experience terrestrially are vertically mediated. Um, and, you know, and her, her previous work has been about satellites, but it's, it's fascinating to see the way um, she makes the case that the things drones are doing are literally shifting the chemicals in the atmosphere. Um, and that this is having uh, a kind of immediate impact on the daily lives of, um, of Americans. And so um, I guess for me, it's been a real um, useful text just because it's, it's modeling the kind of 
uh, work you can do when you start disregarding, <laughs> right? Or like taking seriously this, this idea that the, the battle space, the space of battle and the space of the domestic sphere are not separable, right? But that this is a completely permeable, um, a completely permeable space and we have to start um, recognizing uh, those connections and, and thinking about the way that that, um, uh, that dynamic uh, traces back and forth between um, uh, military practices and, and domestic ones. So um, yeah, it's a great book. You guys should check it out. <laughs> I, I love that book too, and, and in fact, the passage you mentioned about the the shifting the um, you know the the chemistry of the air as is one of the sections of of the book. Um, uh, so, um, what's next for you in your research? And dare I ask, um, when do we get to read the book? <laughs> um, yeah, so I am. Um finishing up the drones and domesticity book um, no official date yet um, but I'm I'm confident it will be out in the coming years <laughs> uh, and I am um, yeah I'm really looking forward uh, to finishing that off um, the work that I'm doing now uh, is um, I mean you, you you'll see it in the um, in the talk you're going to hear today but it's interested in, in carrying out, I think, some of the things that I observed um, thinking about how drones are working in U.S. domestic space, um, but turning um, more explicitly to, to the way um, drones and uh, the security state more generally participates in a kind of project of extraction. Um, uh, and, and what this what this linkage between the security state and um, uh, extraction means. So, so I'm thinking about natural resources. There's, there's a lot to say about uh, oil and aluminum and uh, hydropower. Um, I'm working on a piece right now about dams and the way dams are surveilled um, by uh, drones, right? That there's this idea of like uh, dam infrastructure being very, difficult to to for humans to monitor just because of the sort of scale of them and so um, drones are getting getting deployed to do this and at the same time there are sort of these amazing uh, cultural texts like uh, sleep dealer and uh, the old drift which is a, a novel a science fiction novel that came out recently um, that think about the relationship between drones and dams um, so I'm I'm really interested in in um, figuring those sorts of things out and then um, I'm interested not only in in what I think of as as a sort of natural resource extraction, but but the sort of ways that drones also function as an affective technology, which to me is a sort of exciting um, sight. So so the way that that domestic drones, humanitarian drones, consumer drones are able to extract affects and emotions and labor um, from humans, right? And I think I think that this is sort of one of for me, um, the next uh, interesting um, continuations of the, of the work, right? That actually they're they're penetrating subjectivity um, in in ways that that we haven't even begun to study. So I'm excited about that. And now, here's Jen Schnepf with her talk, "Ecological Crisis and the Rise of Drone Humanitarianism." 
Thank you um, so much, Michael. I wanted to say, um, first of all, thank you for the invitation to speak here today. So to begin, so Kate Chandler first uh, related to us uh, the plot of what she called a bad movie. Um, this is Kingsman, uh, The Gold Circle. Um, from 2017. What's relevant for you to know if you haven't watched it is that this character on your screen, Poppy Adams, is the head of a global drug cartel. Poppy puts a toxin in her drugs that slowly paralyzes her consumers. We see the reach of her global distribution network as it physically penetrates the nervous systems of the Princess of Sweden, an undercover agent at a Kentucky bourbon distillery, a young man in London, and the US Secretary of State. The narrative of the film comes to a conclusion uh, in the following way, and these are Chandler's words. Um, she says, the vaccine, the antidote, is distributed worldwide by an amazing fleet of flying drones. I uh, screen captured this image for you. So you can see um, a blurry photo of uh, drones passing by uh, the Statue of Liberty and the golden liquid is uh, the anecdote to this deadly um, toxin. Uh, so Chandler says, uh, in this image, we have the problems of the world sort of being magically solved through a fleet of mechanical drones that will quickly right all the wrongs that have happened and are part of our political and ethical practices. So very quickly, you can see how in the case of this film, we have a global humanitarian disaster, a familiar one. Um, the welfare of millions of human lives are at stake. And the solution here that's been posed is that uh, the tech that will save us um, is the drone. So I do think at least in this film, there's a bit of a, a tongue in cheek framing going on that's a bit interesting. Again, another capture, uh, screen capture from the film. Um, in the first place, I think, um, as if to interrupt the audience from cheering on this idea of the humanitarian drone, they're branded with the name of the plot's villain. And there you can see uh, Poppy um, mentioned on the side of the drone. Um, and second, you can see in uh, the laptop that uh, Poppy uses, the same monster corporation that thrives on the transportation and logistics of global capitalism to distribute um, drugs around the world is now uh, extending its reach once again into the deepest biological recesses of human life. In other words, uh, here the film's visualization of the roots and targets of global capitalism that led to the impending mass death reveals itself a second time, where captive consumers are now the targets of relief for vaccine. So what I mean to suggest, uh, I think, is that uh, Poppy's distribution empire uh, in this film actually encourages us to see drones from an infrastructural perspective. Uh, and this helps us see their intractable entanglements with global capital and the villains that profit off of it, uh, rather than as autonomous technological agents uh, doing good deeds on their own. Um, in this case, good deeds being the uh, dispensation of life. So this sort of infrastructural approach to uh, humanitarian drones um, is one I'm gonna be taking today. This approach, sorry, is indebted to the work of Lisa Parks. Um, and Nicole um, Starosielski for pointing out the complex materialities of media infrastructures um, that distribute digital content. So um, this has been a, a turn from um, digital content itself, right, to the um, uh, infrastructures that distribute signal um, and determine its form. 
So adopting an infrastructural disposition will shift our focus to the materialities of signal distribution and its inseparability from the biophysical environment. Um, as I'm going to suggest today, uh, this sort of approach, I hope, will make help us make sense of real-world drones uh, framed as technologies that save lives. Um, in the example that's on your screen right now, uh, it's important to know, right, that rather than seek out local public solutions, in this case, um, a government contracted an Australian uh, commercial drone company called Swoop Aero. Um, in what appears to be yet another kind of um, new intervention between doctor and patient made by a private company that will in turn reap the benefits of that. So for all these reasons, uh, the words that uh, Chandler left us with last time are going to serve uh, as the epigraph for my talk today. And I've, I've done my best to reproduce that on the screen in front of you. So she says, I would like to propose an alternative image. We don't need a fleet of drones that's going to fix everything. We need human actions to take back the idea of the machine and machine futures, and instead think about that as the ways we can act and transform. So instead of being acted upon by the drone, the drone is actually something that is acted upon by human hands. And if we want to use them to save people, this is already a problematic set of rhetorics. But that needs to be front and center, that the drone doesn't do the saving. Rather, it is the ways in which the drone provides a medium for human relationality. And through those forms of relating to one another, that maybe we could come up with something that might be more just. So thank you to Kate for that. In my talk today, I'm going to consider the eco-drone's emergent status uh, as a humanitarian technology in the way I've laid out, but here in the context of environmental disaster relief efforts. So to do this, I'm going to introduce you to four key points uh, regarding the kinds of um, situations that I think get produced when we look at the ways in which domestic consumer drones get deployed um, in ecological crises. Uh, and in particular, I'm looking at flood aftermaths in um, southern United States like uh, Texas, Louisiana, and North Carolina. Four points uh, that I want to uh, impart to you today. Uh, the first is that better sensing technologies will not save lives. What I mean by this is that we need to look um, as well at the broader public funding of infrastructure, um, of search and rescue labor, of roadways, um, the funding of levees. Uh, this is also to say that it's important to think of drone technologies as large-scale media infrastructures rather than as isolated or disconnected objects. Uh, number two, the figure of the heroic drone operator. Um, I think this is what Inderpal Grewal um, would call an exceptional citizen, a figure who voluntarily does the security work of the state when the state uh, retreats from that civic obligation. There was a little bit of back and forth on this um, with my, my editors for uh, the piece that I'm sharing with you today, um, with Janet Walker and Lisa Parks, because it's important, um, we recognize, to be both critical of, of this figure of the heroic drone operator and at the same time recognize that the position um, has opened up in the first place because of a failing welfare state. So um, we didn't want this to be a condemnation of um, individual volunteers, but at the same time allow a space to be critical of the heroic drone operator as a figure um, that emerges in the discourse. 
And number three, um, citizen sensing of ecological disaster by drone uh, can undermine um, some of our most uh, pernicious drone myths. And number four, the humanitarian drone discourse is a formation of imperialism. Uh, and I think here uh, I will head off the inevitable questions that I might get. Is there such thing as a good drone? Uh, I've got that before. By just sort of saying that I um, think that to accept the premise of that, that question would be to concede to a definition of what humanitarian drones are that I want to resist. Um, so again, looking in infrastructural terms, we cannot disentangle this technology from how it's made, uh, who has access to it, what kind of power they hold, and how the drone is further entrenching and consolidating that power. And as I'll show today, what kind of labor and affects uh, that power compels drones to extract from humans. Uh, I'm going to sort of resist the good-bad categorization, um, but rather uh, critique the way that it um, gets deployed in, in the discourses we're going to be looking at today. Okay, so part one, better sensing technologies will not save lives. Drone social media makes flood rescue happen in real time. Um, this is the headline of a CNN news item that was first published um, back in October of 2016. According to the story, a man named Quavis Hart of Fayetteville, um, North Carolina, uh, flew his consumer drone over homes engulfed by floodwaters near Hope Springs um, in order to take aerial photographs. Uh, Hart then uploaded the image to Instagram. Uh, that's what you see in front of you. So just the tops of the houses um, showing up uh, over the muddy waters. Uh, he linked this shot to Twitter and shortly thereafter, he was contacted on Twitter by a stranger in Texas named uh, Craig Williams. The Twitter uh, exchange is up for you on the screen. So this is um, uh, Crypto Quavo is Quavo Hart and Craig Williams, um, recognizing it's his brother's house in the response. Um, and you can see this, this exchange playing out on um, social media. So as it turns out, William's brother, Chris, uh, had been stranded in his attic for 14 hours in, in that previous image. One of those um, rooftops was his. And this Instagram post was the first time that Chris saw the danger that his brother, sorry, the uh, Craig saw the danger that his brother was in. Despite repeated efforts to contact government agencies to rescue Chris, no one picked up Craig's calls. As he remembered it, we called local emergency services, we called the fire department, and nothing would go through. So Craig Williams appealed directly to Hart who used his drone to attract the attention of a passing um, FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency um, boat uh, to get, Chris home, get to Chris's home. And according to Hart, they wouldn't have checked the house had I not distracted them with my drone. So in the newspaper story that I just showed you, uh, this was summed up as a drone operator, the perseverance of family and the cross country reach of social media. In a straightforward way, we can see how the story underscores the humanitarian potential of putting new media technologies in the hands of private citizens to combat the human tragedy that accompanies environmental disaster. What makes the tale of Chris's rescue from the attic particularly interesting, however, is not only that it casts citizen drone rescue in heroic terms, but also that it naturalizes and it anticipates the outsourcing of disaster relief to private actors. 
In dwelling on the saga of missed connections, sheer coincidences that the rescue depends upon, the news story inadvertently highlights the absence of reliable public emergency services. At the same time, it promulgates the promise of a spontaneous media network um, that links strangers to one another. Cuevas' heart becomes representative of the expectation that US citizens can commandeer media assemblages to assume the work of public welfare in times of peril, effectively transforming into privatized agents of post-disaster search and rescue missions in the process. So in the wake of natural disasters, such as hurricanes, floods, and fires, social media platforms are awash with amateur photos and videos that bring the immediacy of local devastation to millions of viewers across the globe. We can classify the capture and circulation of such images as ecological surveillance or eco-sensing by private citizens, insofar as this labor often is a non-professional, but nonetheless near instantaneous visual record of an environmental catastrophe. Facilitated by consumer electronics, such as cell phones and consumer drones, the practice of citizen eco-sensing approximates professional methods of documentation taken up by corporations, scientific bodies, and government agencies in recent years. For advocates of ecological surveillance, professional forms of eco-sensing promise to ensconce the planet within an expanding web of instrumentation, effectively reimagining the earth as a self-reporting patient who communicates its injuries and facilitates its healing um, through both human and non-human corrective measures. Environmental media scholar uh, Jennifer Gabris has described these surveillance practices as the sensorization of the environment. Um, that is the deployment of remote sensing technologies in the service of environmental monitoring, a practice that is computational, often networked, frequently automated, and becoming um, all the more uh, ubiquitous. These practices can include putting to work any number of sensing technologies, um, be they terrestrial, um, aerial or both. So my focus today will be on the aerial. Recently, ecologists and con conservation biologists have expanded uh, their aerial environmental sensing resources by bringing unmanned aerial systems or drones into the fold of digital sensing technologies. Um, with their unique mobility, eco-drones work alongside satellites, um, conventional uh, static uh, web cameras as yet another camera-based mode of sensing the environment. The drone sensing capacities come to the fore, for example, uh, in reports recounting the adoption of the eco-drone as a life-saving instrument intervening in environmental crisis, in the environmental crisis of species extinction. Uh, the recruitment of this technology um, in animal conservation efforts is evidenced in the sheer number of global scientific projects that deploy these aerial systems. Um, so within the US, uh, there are reports of uh, eco-drones uh, rehabilitating um, the pygmy rabbit population uh, in Idaho, um, outside the US, and here on your screen, uh, you have a sort of depiction of what I think is the most popular uh, narrative that we're getting these days about um, the relationship between uh, drones and animal conservation. Um, uh, and that is eco-drones as guards to the lives of charismatic megafauna, 
um, in the Luanda National Park in Malawi, for instance, trained operators deploy uh, thermal cameras uh, affixed to bat hawk drones to spot potential poachers who hunt protected uh, elephants and rhinoceros. Um, and I'll just say that a lot of those uh, projects are um, coming from uh, US, private US drone companies. So um, once again, the privatization is entering by way of the uh, drone. So the EcoDrone has also revolutionized the process of visually monitoring the dynamic environmental conditions that are characteristic of natural disasters. When flying over melting ice sheets in Greenland, monitoring lava flows in Hawaii, or capturing infrared images of active fires in Australia, the EcoDrone's ability to traverse the planet's most inhospitable environments has ushered in an unprecedented perspective of the non-human world, and in doing so has helped to shape the way we visualize environmental change in the 21st century. Proponents of the turn to aerial sensing technology predict that this drive to survey all aspects of the environment will not only transform the public's environmental imagination, but will hasten the mobilization of humanitarian aid um, in future environmental disasters. In the case of humanitarian crises precipitated by floods, um, Gabrice, for example, has stated that the planetary self-reporting uh, through sensors could effectively be used to signal flood alerts to enable rapid responses to disaster situations. This means, um, and this is her quote, that floods can be instantly reported to ensure intelligent and immediate environmental management. The claim that the near instantaneous speed at which information travels through digital networks will inevitably lead to similarly rapid or immediate environmental management deserves careful scrutiny, um, especially given that it elides the discrepancy between disaster reporting and sensing on the one hand and disaster management on the other. Just as the story of uh, Quavis and Craig at the beginning of my talk illustrated, the drone operator's promise of help did not entail immediate rescue. In fact, high-tech eco-sensing in disaster conditions reveals a sharp discrepancy between the fact of sensing and the amelioration of human devastation. So part two, the heroic drone operator does unpaid care labor once performed by the state. So I've been suggesting that the figures of the post-disaster eco-drone and its pilot are indices of the failed public infrastructure of the neoliberal state. And yet, um, as the news report I started with illustrated, stories of post-disaster flooding tout the privatized humanitarian drone as an indispensable instrument for the industrious citizen who flies it into action. The privatization of citizen rescues in the aftermath of disaster has given rise to the emergent figure of the heroic drone operator. This recreational flyer's combination of privately honed piloting skills and humanitarian impulse is conscripted as a form of flexible work, uh, volunteered on behalf of the public good in times of ecological crisis. Consumer drone rescues constitute just the latest iteration of a long-standing practice of emergency assistance via private recreation vehicle in the Southern United States. For instance, after Hurricane Katrina, stories of rescue by exceptional citizens outfitted with pickup trucks and fishing boats uh, became regular 
uh, a, a regular feature of disaster reporting. Um, and this is uh, the website for the Cajun Navy, which maybe you've heard of. Um, the stories that circulated about the Cajun Navy described as a volunteer online grassroots effort that is founded on the realization that large government agencies aren't quick moving. Um, we're particularly uh, fast to expound on the phenomenon of crossing state lines to selflessly help fellow citizens in danger. Um, I'll just say, uh, if you look at the writing in the lower left-hand corner for requesting a rescue, you can see some of this tension between um, state actors and private actors. So um, the Cajun Navy asking people to please first call 911, um, that we're doing our best as a large group of volunteers, um, but to please filter life-threatening requests through official channels. So. Uh, this privatization of rescue is being is being managed um, in concert with um, government uh, and official state bodies. So in some accounts of the uh, work of the Cajun Navy, uh, the brotherhood of interstate survivors is forged through the shared experience of dispossession. While some rescue volunteers frame the labor of private disaster rescue as a means of shoring up an extended family, Others narrate these selfless acts as mainstays of Cajun cultural identity. Uh, another member of the Cajun Navy proposed that his compulsion to rescue strangers could be chalked up to his Southern upbringing. It's just the way we were brought up, he says, you help your neighbor. In this observation, the private rescuer downplays the heroism of his actions at the same time he naturalizes the humanitarian desire to help others. As with fishing vessels commandeered by the Cajun Navy, consumer drones, the latest iteration of rescue vehicles, similarly convert the recreational play afforded to private citizens into socially beneficial skills to be volunteered in disaster conditions. Like the Cajun Navy members, drone operators express a communal desire to provide assistance to those trapped in emergency situations, even as the state supplies support from the skies. So speaking in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, for example, uh, one pilot said, I knew there were airborne emergency operations going on in Houston as we speak, but I also know there was a whole community of drone operators ready to coordinate with local authorities to aid in whatever way we can. These stories of public-private rescue configurations happen against a broader economic backdrop in which recreational practices have become increasingly indistinguishable from profitable enterprise. This sort of blurring occurs in a story entitled Drone Company Saving Lives in Louisiana Flood. This observed that a drone photography company located in Louisiana posted a message on their Facebook page offering to fly over and photograph the neighborhoods of unaccounted for loved ones and was swiftly inundated with messages requesting assistance. Desperate requests to check on buildings, animal shelters, senior communities and cemeteries where loose coffins have been seen floating down flooded streets are being posted to and responded to. The discursive character of this communal response expressed by private sector drone operators in these instances harkens back to a masculine white working class narrative of self-reliance. Um, that has cropped up in other communities within the US that have grappled with problems of responding to natural disasters. Um, I'm thinking here of the writing of John Krasowski, uh, who has 
um, written on the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy in the Rockaways in New York. Um, he points out that stories of self-sufficiency and entrepreneurship are the keynotes of neoliberal response to extreme weather in the US, and that the way these traits become associated with nostalgia for a simpler time in America allows tropes of self-reliance to function not as an anxiety-provoking revo anxiety response um, to contemporary problems, but as a soothing recollection of yesteryear's joys. In much the same way, stories of disaster rescue in the South turn to the consumer drone, not as a cutting edge technology, but as a new humanitarian tool with which to act out a familiar script of overcoming physical perils to achieve communal self-sufficiency in the fate of mounting structural inequality. So part three, eco, citizen eco-sensing can undermine drone myths. And I really, uh, in, in this um, section, want to sort of highlight that I think this is, this is uh, an area that is ripe for more study. Um, I wanna contrast the powerful and pervasive narratives of heroic private drone operators that I just discussed uh, with a different use of drones in flood conditions. So in this section, um, Drones used for citizen eco-sensing of uh, flood conditions don't lead to the rapid deployment of public resources. As a rejoinder to the life-saving discourse of the drone, the heroic drone operator, citizen eco-sensing from above does not apprehend an authoritative view that unifies uh, the sites from below. Um, instead, it can document widespread infrastructural failure and devastation caused by the absence of public welfare. So today, still moving aerial images of flooding posted by private individuals have become something of an emergent genre on social media platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. For example, in the case of floods in southern United States in 2016, anyone with access to the internet um, can see flood images by searching hashtags like Louisiana flood 2016 or hashtag flood 2016. Within the digital media milieu, uh, YouTube user and drone operator Dev Null successfully transmitted images of the catastrophic local flooding to the world via video upload on YouTube. Over several consecutive days in August of 2016, Devnall became an eco-sensing citizen subject when they shot a series of amateur videos with a consumer drone that captured aerial footage of the catastrophic flooding in and around Livingston Parish, uh, east of Baton Rouge near the cities of Denham Springs and Springfield. Um, and I just wanted to include this map so you kind of can get a sense of where Livingston is. Um, relative to New Orleans. So New Orleans um, is in the, um, in Orleans County, which is um, down into the uh, southeast of Livingston. So if a lot of uh, national media attention um, is centered on um, the urban space of New Orleans, and you can see that um, Livingston being a little bit um, outside the city limits, uh, is going to receive less attention. Again, another reason it's so interesting to see um, citizen footage. So given the lack of national news footage showing the devastation 
um, by people who live in Livingston, Devnall's videos provide important visual evidence of the unprecedented flooding experienced in rural Louisiana. Um, Devnall's uploaded videos also communicated more than changing water levels. Thanks to the drone's elevation and the parish's flat rural landscape, the video videos also visualize the collapse of terrestrial transportation and communication networks at an infrastructural scale. Um, so uh, Devnall's videos are um, moving images and uh, you know, just to make sure that um, everybody can see the images clearly, instead of embedding the videos, I've included screen captures. Um, but I'll try and explain what happens um, in and around the captures that I'm showing you. So uh, this one is from a video um, that dwells on spaces once occupied by automobiles. Here, uh, a drone hovers low, documenting a submerged parking lot and a strip mall uh, located on Route 12 in Jublin in Livingston. Uh, moving across the parking lot, the mobile camera will pan slowly over the water's surface. Um, and the shop names of the storefronts become easily legible. Bed Bath & Beyond, Ross Dress for Less, Shoe Carnival, PetSmart, and Lane Bryant. Parked trucks are scattered along the water's edge in this video. The drone's exploration of the mall not only monitors the flood's progress, but also evinces the ease with which the aerial camera navigates routes 12, Route 12's newly aquatic environs, a feat impossible for vehicles confined to terrestrial modes of locomotion. The contrast between the presence of the drone and the absence of automobiles is pronounced. The uncanny appearance of the abandoned American strip mall offers a stark visual reminder of late capitalism's continued dependence on land-based transportation infrastructures to bring both goods and customers into brick and mortar stores. Devnall's video documents the fragility of the local system of, road, that, of roadways that rural southerners depend on to reach goods and services. So something like a change in weather pattern can expose the highway system, um, which becomes suddenly fragmented and the area's existing transportation infrastructures are shown to not be able to function um, uh, apart from within a very narrow sort of weather pattern. Um, in another video, this one was posted the day before, um, the mall one I just showed you. This one is entitled Louisiana Flood 2016, Springfield Highway 22. Um, trap vehicles litter the landscape once again. From the drone's vantage, the muddy floodwaters transform the one, once uninterrupted farmlands into an impromptu island archipelago. Surrounded by water, um, you can see in the upper left-hand corner, uh, parked yellow school buses have become immobilized, confined to their schoolyards. Uh, at the bottom, towards the center, you can just make out five pixelated human shapes, a black pickup truck, uh, and a boat trailer um, on another island of land. Nearby, a spidering pattern of brown water marks out where roads once led, and Devnall's drone rises and loosely tracks a broad expanse of this water through the trees. So obviously, this is a um, submerged road that you can see going up the center. And this is a, um, a pulled back version of that. Um, but you can still see the pickup truck and the buses down into the left of the image. So this is taken from a, a sort of greater distance. Um, but what it shows, I think, is uh, 
the sort of pattern of telephone poles on the left-hand side of the sort of waterway, which was once the roadway. Um, these peaking out of the water intermittent, intermittent intervals are the only indication that this was once a highway. The repetition of the poles in the image testify, I think, to the materiality of Livingston Parish's existing terrestrial communication technology systems um, as they bend under siege of the water. The wires necessary to transmit electricity and telephone calls dip low under extreme environmental stress. The ecodrome thus provides a unique perspective, precisely because it does not rely on either telephone wires or roadways to connect to the world beyond the parish, it can transmit scenes of ruptured communication and transportation networks through media infrastructures of its own. Um, I should add this isn't always the case, right? Um, that, that oftentimes terrestrial media infrastructures are um, very much a part of, of um, the kinds of communication that, that drones do. But here, I think that the contrast um, between the um, wireless drone and, and the wired scene below is quite interesting. Devnall's eco-drone functions as one component of a transhuman media infrastructure in this instance, a material formation that is going to include human and non-human agents, uh, including the drone's operator, the camera, uh, the drone's rotors, as well as the computer, uh, internet cables, servers, uh, the atmosphere and the floodwaters, and this is this is one of the places where I find that idea of the biophysical environment being part of infrastructure really uh, suddenly significant. All of this together enables the circulation of ecological information at local, national, and global levels. The contrast between this network and Livingston Parish's um, inundated local and national terrestrial networks is a stark one. What's significant though, is that the failure to link up citizen eco-sensing through private networks with public search and rescue resources, not only underscores a lack of government aid in such situations, it highlights the absence of the forms of heroic rescue uh, that we saw from the private sphere earlier. Final section of my talk today, um, the humanitarian drone, humanitarian drone discourse as an imperial formation. So the tenacity with which the humanitarian drone discourse persists in churning out heroic rescue and life-giving properties situates both the figure of the heroic drone operator and the drone itself firmly into the US public's biopolitical imagination. Discourse surrounding the humanitarian drone routinely positions it as a mechanical agent tending to the biopolitical imperative to administer life to advance what Foucault has described as the mandate to foster life or to make live. The implications of bestowing life-giving qualities onto domestic drones, given the broader geopolitical context of late US empire's reliance on lethal drone strikes are many. To address them, one must adopt a broader historical view of eco-sensing drones via a media archeological approach. So in his account of Earth Observing Media, communication scholar Chris Russell defines the dual use conception of media technology as an industrial policy that acknowledges the formative influence of military design and funding on technology. Um, 
things such as radar, sonar, automated computation, and satellites, while suggesting that civilian and peaceful applications are just as likely as not. So while dual-use technology can carry humanitarian promise, uh, that open source and real-time accessibility will generate social good for, from recording storage and processing capabilities, Russell also observes that these capabilities remain as unevenly distributed as ever. Karen Kaplan has pointed out that with respect to the daily civilian use of geographic uh, information systems, or GIS, uh, that for people in the United States, war is not elsewhere, but is in fact deeply imbricated in everyday life as a sort of military industrial media entertainment network. She contends that uh, as the uncritical use of military developed technologies saturates contemporary culture and becomes normalized, so too does the militarization of citizens and consumer subjects of the United States. So this framing, I think, has powerful implications when it comes to appraising the influence that drones, uh, consumer drones wield as technologies discursively interwoven with the protection of life in times of environmental crisis. Such a view of unmanned aerial technology may be transposed into the arena of international warfare, where the lethal use of drones to carry out signature strikes and targeted killings have become emblematic of the US-led war on terror. As technologies of US imperial power, militarized drones consign untried individuals to death via the extra legal violence administered by the state's self-assigned power to decide who dies. For political philosopher Akila Mbembe, the logic that would kill others in order to maintain the life of one's own population describes the dark underbelly of Foucauldian biopower. Such a necropolitics, as he calls it, as Mbembe calls it, is often regarded by state actors as an extension, as an extension of the government's promise to make its population live. And I'm arguing today that this discourse, this sort of seesawing between um, biopolitical life making and necropolitical life taking, um, is now being rooted explicitly through this figure of the drone. In a theory of the drone, um, Gregor Chamiou has noted that the military drone has been conceived of as a humanitarian weapon par excellence. Um, so just to lay out what he means by that, he notes that by eliminating the possibility of a military life, that a military life will be lost in combat, proponents of uh, drone use in uh, military situations have argued that the drone adheres to the principle of vital self-preservation. Uh, in its accordance with this logic, says Shamayu, the drone can be said to be a humanitarian weapon. The humanitarian imperative is to save lives, and it does indeed save our lives. It is therefore a humanitarian technology. So, so Shamu is really sort of focused in on the idea of US lives being saved um, through the use of drones. But I also want to acknowledge that a lot of uh, the discourse around military drones has to do with precision, right? So also this idea that somehow um, uh, collateral lives have potentially been saved by using this more precise weapon. So in addition to all of that, um, I'm linking the discourse of the military drone as a technology to 
the domestic humanitarian intervention I've been talking about um, to expand the claim beyond the military sphere that Shamayu seems to limit it to uh, with this, this claim. In order to argue that this imperial thinking is actually saturating the US drone imagination both abroad and at home, um, both in the foreign military case and in the, the domestic humanitarian one, that these are two sides of that same coin. So the discourse around the domestic eco-drone as an ostensibly humanitarian life-giving technology veils over its alignment with the geopolitical objectives of the US security state, which under the guise of war, of resistance, or of the fight against terror makes the murder of its enemy its primary and absolute objective. The domestic rise of consumer drones for eco-sensing and humanitarian purposes cannot be dissociated from the violence of the drone-assisted war on terror that carries on abroad. To take drones seriously as biopolitical machines, as Lisa Parks and Karen Kaplan have called them, is to come to terms with the vitalizing element that courses through the cultural imaginary of the humanitarian drone as it is deployed across a range of theaters. In the end, attending to this cultural imaginary links together the discourses that frame the disaster rescuers unmanned aerial systems that are designed to rescue human life of those trapped by floodwaters um, and the wildlife conservationist unmanned aerial systems designed to preserve the lives of animals to the military's unmanned aerial systems designed to protect the lives of US citizens. So this analysis of humanitarian drone discourse and the infrastructures I've laid out here today makes clear, I think, that appeals to reframe the drone as a life-giving technology must continue to be carefully critiqued given the precarious lives in the US and abroad that hang in the balance. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of Drone Futures, a limited series on the Media Futures podcast. For more info about the Drone Futures series, visit us at www.mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review and subscribe. It really does help new listeners find us and spread the word too. Special thanks to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen-McKinnon and to our research assistant, the brilliant Madeleine Weber. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Australian Research Council. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.